favorite verse of the wonderful old hymn, Amazing Grace, is the, the verse that goes, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And I love that because what that verse is telling us is that when we are in the Lord's presence, there, I mean, time is almost meaningless. It's, it's just, that's the beginning. You know, it's kind of like we think about, I mean, nowadays when you hear people talk about life and death, they talk about the afterlife. Well, if you really believe amazing grace and you believe God's word, that what, what happens to us after we die, the physical death is not the afterlife. That's the life. If you're just doing the math, because we're going to be there a lot longer than we were ever here. We might be here 70, 80, 100 years, whatever it may be, but that's the pre-life. The afterlife, what we call the afterlife, that's the life. And in many ways, the, the, first, or the last two chapters of Revelation are pointing to the life. It's the end of Revelation. It's the end of the Bible. It's the end of history as we know it. But it's really just the beginning of the life in eternity that we will spend with God. I began this series by bringing to you an old, uh, an old song from the 80s, from my college days, by a band called R.E.M. out of Athens, Georgia. And it won, it's one you may remember hearing on the radio at some point. The, the song was, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And you remember the, the song, the course of the song went like this. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. You know, that's what these last two chapters of Revelation are about. The end of the world as we know it, and yet something even better coming along. Now, I want to make sure that we understand that, that this is not a chapter, this is not a story, this is not a, a book the, that ends with the end of the world. It ends with the end of the world as we know it. And... To kind of set this up, to frame this out a little bit, I want to ask you, how many of you all remember uh, a TV show that was very popular maybe five, ten years ago called Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Do you all remember that one? Um, it, was, it was really cool. It was one of those home renovation shows. But the idea was that some lucky uh, contestant or applicant would, would send in a, a story about their family, something inspiring, something tragic, and the production crew would come and just redo their entire house. And, and always the climax of the show was when the, you know, the family had been gone for a while. They sent them to Disney World or Six Flags or something like that for, for a few days. And while the crew furiously makes over their house. But they come back and all their neighbors are there and the crew's there and all their friends are there. I remember this happened in Augusta, Georgia once while we were there. It was really cool. But there's, you know, they, they bring in the family and they, they put them right behind this big sort of Greyhound or, 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 uh, or um, Trailways bus. And the, the climax of the show was always when they said, are you ready to see your new house? And they would say what? Move that bus. You know, move that bus. And then they would pull the bus away and they would see how their house had been transformed by these people who were loving and caring and generous and did all this work for them. And they could see that it was still the same house, but it was just utterly transformed. It was something completely new. It was kind of like their old house was gone, but I feel pretty good about it. 
Nobody ever said, oh, put the stuff back, put the, put the rotten wood back, put the old shutters back, get, fill in the pool. I mean, nobody ever said that. It was always, this is wonderful, what a gift. It's the end of the world as we know it. This is the end of my house as I know it. And I feel pretty good about this. It's an extreme makeover. And, and what we see in these last two chapters of Revelation is God's extreme makeover of our home. This last chapter, or these last two chapters of Revelation bring into focus a theme that's been pervasive throughout, but is really brought into focus here. And that fifth theme is the new creation of God. The fifth theme of Revelation is the new creation of God. Because the prevailing theme of Revelation is that God is coming not to destroy the earth, but to restore the earth. If you listen to Hollywood's take on Revelation, if you listen to literature's take on Revelation, you would think that the end of Revelation is the destruction of the world. But what we see, in fact, is that it's not the destruction of the world, it is the restoration of the world. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is the story of God's generation, his, about the world's degeneration, and then about God's regeneration. And that's what we see here, because the promise of Revelation is that our Lord is the Alpha and the Omega, and that God's work in the world will not be, will not be complete until all of creation is restored. And what we find out if we read the scope of the Bible is that God is not interested in destroying the world but restoring the world. And in fact, that is why Jesus Christ came. John 3:17 says that I did not come into this world to destroy the world but that the world might be saved. He did not come to destroy us but to restore the world. And so as we look at these last two chapters of Revelation, we want to see that God is going to do something absolutely amazing and that he has already started the process in Jesus Christ. Now let's review for a second last week when we talked about the second coming of Christ, when we talked about Christ and his glorious appearing and the white rider appearing, and we talked about the millennium, but we finalized with the idea of the judgment and something that I really want to emphasize about the judgment, because I don't think I can make this, this point too clearly or that I can make this point too uh, emphatically. And that is that when we come to the judgment, we need to understand that all of creation will be judged. All of humanity will be judged. And that includes us. We do not get to skip out on the tribulations or any of that. And we don't get to skip out on the judgment. And here's why. Because if we miss the judgment, we miss something really, really important. I, la I asked you all last week, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? And I really wanted to make sure of that. Because here's what happens. At the judgment, there is a separation of those who are who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and those who do not. And, and it breaks down like this. For those who do not believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, then the judgment means everything that people fear it means. Everything that Hollywood presents it to mean. That the judgment is condemnation. 
that it is that comeuppance, that justice, that punishment for all the things that we have done and left undone. Yes, that is the judgment if you are not trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But the flip side, the better side, the eternal side of the judgment is that for those who believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord, it's not a condemnation, it's a confirmation. It's a confirmation of his grace, a confirmation of his forgiveness, a confirmation of his healing, a confirmation of his love, a confirmation of his authority, confrontation, a confirmation of his sovereignty, a confirmation that in his eyes you matter and that he loves you. And so what we find in the judgment is that when Christ comes, we have the confirmation of our own lives, our own salvation, not of the things we've done, but the things that Christ has done for us. But we also begin to see the confirmation of all God's promises. And that starts immediately with creation itself. So a few weeks ago, or no, excuse me, just last week, last Saturday, I was taking a, um, I was taking a bike ride. I, it was just a beautiful day. Do y'all remember last Saturday? It was a you know, nice 75 to 80 degree day. Um, I, just went for a, I just went for a bike ride on the Salado Creek Parkway. And as I was coming around this bend, this right that parallels Harry Warsbach, I just got to the top of this rise that kind of looks to McAllister Park on your right and to the airport on your left. And there's just this field of beautiful yellow flowers. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not a plant person. They may have been weeds, but they were beautiful and they were yellow and mixed in were these little blue and purple flowers. And again, I'm not a lifelong Texan, so I don't know if those were blue bonnets, but in my mind they were, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a botanist, but all I can say is that it was absolutely beautiful. The sky was blue. The, the flowers were covering the field. The, chim- the temperature was perfect. You know, just a couple weeks before that, I'd been up, in, uh, been up in Breckenridge, Colorado with my son, and we were there with Morgan up on, on the top of one of the ski slopes. And as I got off and we were getting ready to get on the slope, there's just the entire Rocky Mountains just laid out in front of me. Just the blue and the black and the white of the mountains against the sky. And it was just, oh, it was beautiful. It was perfect. I remember once just last fall when Morgan and I were, uh, we just had one of those lazy October Sunday afternoons when I didn't have any commitments here at the church and we didn't have anything going on. And we just took our little boat up to Canyon Lake and, and putted up the Guadalupe River just past the end of the lake a little ways just in the evening. And it was absolutely gorgeous. The birds were chirping and, and it, wasn't too, it wasn't cool yet, it was, but it wasn't too hot and the water was perfect. The sky was perfect. Oh, it was incredible. And I remember thinking all three times, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way that it should be every day. And, and as I thought about that, I thought, you know, what was it like in the beginning of creation when the world was as it is supposed to be? You know, maybe in your mind, you get the vision of being in some place like Hawaii in the sunset or in the, you know, the sunset, or, or maybe you're just, you know, you're out in a, in a wide open plain with, with nothing but the sky and the grass, or maybe you're, you're on a mountain in, in Colorado snowboarding or something like that, whatever it is, you know, you every now and then we get that feeling that this is the way it's supposed to be just utter peace, utter tranquility, just every gift of God, just, just popping all at once. 
And then, unfortunately, we have to come down from the mountain. You have to pull the boat up the ramp. You get back from the bike ride. And you realize that's not the world as it is right now. Because our world, unfortunately, is broken. And we live in a world where it's not just that we humans don't get along. I mean, I mean, can we, I mean, from this summer's riots to the Capitol riots to the elections to these shootings in Atlanta and Boulder to the wars going around in the world, we human beings are in constant conflict with each other, but we're also in constant conflict with nature, aren't we? Nature's in conflict with itself. Natural disasters. I mean, last night, how many of you woke up glad that there was not a tornado last night in your neighborhood? I grew up in South Carolina where, you know, hurricane season really means something. If you lived on the coast in Houston or in, uh, in Corpus Christi, it really means something. All of us remember Hurricane Harvey a few years ago. Um, being up in Colorado, just hearing the, the boom, boom, booms of, of avalanche prevention, you know, blasting the snow off the mountain so it doesn't come down and crush people or towns or skiers or anything like that. I mean, natural disasters. You know, actually, we, when we were coming back from Odessa, uh, from, from Breckenridge, we were actually staying at Morgan's parents uh, for a night. And while, while we were there, Morgan, you know, just went back to the back bedroom for a second. And her mom and dad and I were sitting at the table. All of a sudden, there's this boom, like a second. And we all looked at each other. It's like, what, what was that? And we didn't even think about it until the next morning we saw in the newspaper that there had been an earthquake the previous evening. I mean, nature seems like at times, like it's just falling apart, snowvid, whatever it is. It just seems like sometimes it's just falling apart. And then you get on, that's the macro level. Then you get on the micro level. And what have we been struggling with for the last year? A pandemic, a disease. But it's not just COVID, it's cancer. It's all these other things, the decay, the breakdown of the earth. And we see all these things and we feel the, the struggle, the pain, drought, famine, disease, plague, natural disaster. And we think this isn't the way it's supposed to be, is it? This is not the way God created Eden. This is, I mean, you don't have any of that stuff in Genesis chapter one or Genesis chapter two. This all starts after Genesis chapter three when we fall. So what is the world as it's supposed to be? Because the world as we know it is a tough place. As, as Alfred Lord Tennyson said, described it, that it is nature red in tooth and claw. And have you ever watched the Nature Channel? It'll pretty quickly disabuse you of any idea that nature is a gentle place. So what do we do, Nate? The world is a tough place. The world as we know it is a dangerous place. And yet the Bible points to a life where we will live not in conflict, but in harmony with nature, with one another, with all these things. The Bible teaches us that at the second coming of Christ, not only will our souls be restored, but our souls will be reunited with our bodies, as we discussed last week to some degree, and God will bring heaven and earth together in what the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. Let's look at chapter 21, beginning in verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's something I want to dwell on for just a second. I remember when R.C. Sproul, who used to live, before he died, lived in Florida. He would always tell his, his people, like, I know we all moved to Florida so we could be close to the water. It, it, what, it, this does not necessarily mean that there will not be any water sports in heaven. It does not necessarily mean that. But if God decides that there are no water sports or seas or lakes or anything like that in heaven, don't worry. He's got something better in store. I mean, I'm a boat guy. I love that. It's like, oh, there's not going to be any sea. That scares me. But remember, you know, that's not always been the case historically. The first earth that passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Think about that for a second. What, what would that even be like? And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. We're going to talk about that portion of it as well in just a moment. But let's, you know, I've, I've got there on your outline a long list breaking down, kind of an outline within the outline of, of the way John describes what he sees. And I'm not going to dwell on every one of these details because we would be here for another 21 weeks if we were to pack, unpack every one of these symbols. But he sees a new heaven and a new earth. He sees this, this holy city descending from heaven. You know, what I think about with that is that, you know, it's like on the one hand, there is nature, but there's also civilization. God is not rejecting civilization. What does the city mean? That means community. It means that, you know, that God created us to live in this way. God does not detest cities. God does not detest civilization. God detests corrupt civilization, to be sure. But his creation welcomes that. And I want us, I want us to, to, to note that. Listen, I mean, John hears the words of the angel and he says that God himself will mingle among his people. God will minister it to his people. God has never been an absentee landlord. But one of the crises of the fall was that we could no longer live face to face with God. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second too. Then we also, he also tells us the words of the Almighty, that he will be the father to all the saved, and that he will be the foe to all the unsaved, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. I believe that that's a little bit of sort of looking back, a little, I mean, a little bit of recollection, because by this point, that's all done. By this point, the judgment is complete. Then we get a description of the city, of the city itself, the gates and walls, the size and dimensions, the foundations, the street, the worship. All nations will bring their glory and honor to the temple, to the, uh, excuse me, to, to the city, to, to God. 
And what is the temple? The temple is the city itself. Um, but, God, but John describes, and that's important to note because John describes what is not present in the new, uh, new creation, and that is that there is no physical temple. Isn't that interesting? There is no physical temple in the new Jerusalem. Why is that? It's because the temple, the temple is the physical reminder of God's spiritual presence on earth. I mean, we all, we all know that, that God, we, we refer to the temple or the church as God's house. We, we know that this, no building contains him, but rather it's a physical reminder. The tabernacle, the temple were a physical reminder of God's spiritual reality in the world, that he is in the world. We can point to that and we say, that's our reminder of that. Why is there no temple in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth? Because he's here with us directly. We don't, need to, we don't need a symbol pointing to the presence of God. He is with us face to face all the time. It says there's no need of the sun. Why? Because in the presence of the glory of God, even the sun casts a shadow. The brightness of God's glory provides sufficient light for everything. Nothing, is, nothing can stand next to it. I love this, that there are portals all around the New Jerusalem, but there are no gates, no closed, excuse me, no closed gates. At this point, all are welcome to come and to live and abide with him. And there is no impurity or evil. You know, that's the point of those verses um, verses eight through, uh, or, well, just verse eight, I guess, um, where it goes to that list of sins, you know, in the holy city, in the future, in the eternity that God has for us, one thing that, that will not be present is sin. There is no impurity or evil. Those things will not exist because there is no brokenness with God. And, and I want us to think about that for a second. Can we even imagine what a world without sin would be like. Let me just sort of illustrate this for a second. I, you know, I was talking about this once in a, in a sermon series I did once about heaven. And one of the things I told, um, the, told the congregation was that you know, when we get to heaven, we will see all the redeemed of all the Lord and we will live together, we'll dwell together. And I got a really interesting uh, email from somebody after that, uh, after that sermon. And I got a lot, it was one of those most email provoking series I've ever done. But one of the things it said, one of the things this email said was, I don't think that you're wrong, but I don't like what you said, that we will be with all the redeemed in heaven because my ex-husband was a jerk and I don't want to see him. We had a really bad marriage. He was abusive, all this kind of stuff. He was a terrible person. But then years after we got divorced, he, you know, he came to the Lord, he found the Lord. And according to scripture, he's been forgiven and he's gonna be in heaven, but I still don't wanna see him. <laughs> Does that mean I'm gonna to have to spend all of eternity with him there because of our kids and stuff like that? And in, in a follow-up discussion with this person, I said, what she wanted me to say is, oh, well, yeah, he'll be there, but heaven's gonna be, be a big place and you can spread out and you never have to see him. But that's not the right answer, I don't believe. I believe that in heaven, we're gonna be there and there's not gonna be any sin. That means no, no 
jealousy, no hatred, no unforgiveness, no resentment, no, uh, no uh, competition, no fear, no anxiety. We can't even imagine. I mean, you see people who you had a mild tiff with, you kind of give them a wide berth. But can we even imagine what it would be like to be in a world without sin? I don't think we can. I think we can try, but even, even on our best days of forgiveness, we still hold little bitty resentments, don't we? But all of that's gone. And we will live in a world, I mean, it's like the whole business of, you know, whose, whose husband is, you know, whose hus, husband is she? You know, when, talking, when they're talking about the widow to Jesus. And Jesus' answer is almost like a pull your, hair out of, a pull your hair out of your head answer. It's like, all those concerns you have are based on brokenness. And none of that is going to exist. None of that brokenness is going to exist. And I think that's going to be, I mean, that's going to be the game changer for us in eternity. Um, you know, he talks about the river of life. He talks about the tree of life. You know, finally, we're allowed to go back to the tree of life that, that we couldn't, that, that we've not been allowed to eat from since we ate from the, gar, from the tree of good and evil. It's also the seat of God's power. We see his throne there. It's a place of purity, of divine light. It's a place of welcome. And what's going to be special about it is the fact that the people of the city, the citizens of the New Jerusalem, will see Jesus. We will serve Jesus. And we will reign with Jesus. You know, one of the things I think that's going to happen in, in the judgment is not just a confirmation of our salvation. I think that's all. I think what, one of the things, one of the transactions that's either going to happen there or sometime after that, is that we're going to find out what it is that we're going to be doing for eternity. And it's not just a confirmation of our salvation, it's going to be a confirmation of our vocation. And what I mean by that is, again, if we're going to be reigning with Christ, if we're going to be working with Christ, serving Christ for eons untold, for eternity, what are we going to be doing? And my answer to that is this. Think about what your dream job would be if you could absolutely write it and know that you never had to worry about, you know, how much money you made or anything like that. What would it be? I think that every single one of us is going to show up before the judgment seat of Christ with our dream job written out, and we're going to say, this is what I want to do. And Jesus is going to look at that and say, oh, that's a good start, but you're nowhere close to what I have in store for you. And then he's gonna hand us the job description that he's got for us for eternity, and it is gonna blow your mind. You're gonna be like, I didn't even know I could do that. You mean I get to do this forever? Because he does have a role for us. We're not gonna be sitting idly in heaven because as God took work and made it part of our struggle after the fall. I don't think he's going to get work and get rid of it. I think he's going to take it and he's going to redeem it. He's going to show us the joy in purpose, the joy in creativity, the joy in discipline, the joy 
and all of those things. I mean, think about your best days of work, your best days in, on your job. Aren't those days that just make you feel full, feel whole, feel right? And if you've never had that experience in your work, I, I just, I'm so sorry to hear that. I have it all the time. I'm having it right now. Um, but one day you're gonna have that. If you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will have that one day. And so that's gonna be part of it. And a lot of this is leading back to the fact not that God's going to destroy the earth, not that God's going to take the, take the earth and say, I messed up the first time, get rid of that, let's start again. It's that he's going to bring us back to the world as it's supposed to be. And that's why I want us to go back for a second and talk about Genesis. Because I think to understand chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, the last two chapters of the Bible, we have to understand the first two chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Because one day, I believe, and I believe that the Bible teaches, one day God will recreate, not just his people, but the whole universe. One of my favorite contemporary theologians is a gentleman named Donald MacLeod. He's a Scot, um, a member of the Church of Scotland. And he wrote this incredible little book. It's the little one, one volume systematic theology. Um, but I wanna share with you something that he has written, what I think is a, fa a fantastic summary of what God is doing in Genesis, uh, in Revelation 21 and 22. McLeod writes this, he says, there will be a great moment of regeneration, a moment of new birth for the cosmos itself, when the God who made the world will pull it all apart, and in its place he will call into being a new universe, one which is a continuation of the old world, but yet is radically and splendidly different. Just as the resurrection body is continuous with our current mortal body, and the new man is continuous with the old pre-conversion human being, so there is continuity yet discontinuity between this present universe and the new world God will one day create. We don't know in detail what the differences will be. And what he's likening this to is the resurrection body of Jesus. The resurrection body of Jesus is the same body but different. It's continuous with the old body but different. It uh, transformed. That's the way we will be. I mean, that's the way the earth will be. Same world, new version, extreme makeover. He continues. We do not know that the uh, we do not know that the world will come. We do not know that the world to come will be a world free from the curse introduced by sin. Excuse me. I, let me start that paragraph over. We do know <laughs> that the world to come will be free, a world free from the curse of sin. Free from all vanity, free from all futility, all competition between man and his environment, and all competition between man and other creatures. It's possible, too, that the great forces we are now familiar with will be added to or made to behave in different ways. The forces of gravity, nuclear power, electromagnetism may be modified. Even the speed of light may be modified. All that, however, is speculative. And here's what I've got on your, uh, on your outline. What the Bible makes absolutely clear is that, on, is that not only man's soul and body, but eventually his whole environment will be transformed and revert to its Edenic condition, that is, its Eden-like condition. 
even probably to a condition more splendid than the original paradise. That is the Christian vision, a new soul in a new body in a new universe, each in perfect harmony with the others. And man, able at last to live out his full potential to the glory of God. You know, I think it's probably a shock to many people and especially to many Christians that God's plan for the universe is not that we would vacate this world and just go and live in another place called heaven. I'm going to talk about heaven in a minute. I do believe in heaven. I do believe it's a place. I do believe it's real. But God's ultimate purpose is not that we abandon or that he abandon his creation. Rather, God's eternal plan is that he will recreate the world and he will reconstruct us both physically. And it makes sense if we look at God's original purpose and plan for creation. To understand what God intends for the life to come, we need to go back to the beginning and see his intention for the creation in the first place. Genesis says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is to say, in the beginning, God created the material universe, and it is still important to him. And Genesis tells us several things about the world as God created it. Genesis tells us first, first it shows us rather, that nature and humanity are in, huma- are in harmony rather than in conflict. This is the way it's supposed to be. God's creation, Eden, his garden paradise, provided everything that humanity needed, and yet they were in perfect harmony with each other. Second, it was a place where, uh, where to live in harmony and community, where we are to live in community with each other, in harmony and community with each other. That is to say that we are supposed to be living in peace with one another, and we are supposed to be living in community, not the peace of isolation, but the peace of community. God said of Adam, it is not good that the man should be alone. We are made for community to reflect the image of God, which is Trinity. And so we are to live, you know, to be like Eden is to live in community with one another. Third, Eden was a place where humanity would exercise its God-given creativity, dominion, and stewardship over creation and further develop and cultivate the the garden for God's greater glory. It's a place of purpose. It's a place of stewardship. It's a place of responsibility, not just, you know, not the the pleasure domes of Shangri-La, you know, where we just kind of sit and get fat eating Turkish delight all day. It is a place where God has purpose for us. And then fourth, it was a place where humanity and God would live together in communion, where God would live face to face in fellowship with his children. That's the world described in Genesis one and two. And that was God's original plan for creation. And time after time in the creation story, we see that God paused to declare it is good. Has he changed his opinion of creation? You think God went back to the drawing board and said, no, I messed it up the first time. I'm going to redo it. Or is there something that he is going to do that is going to bring it back even possibly better as part, of his, as part of his plan. Not as a new plan, but as part of his plan. God is going to take and restore what, has, what, what was fallen to be what he intended it to be, the world as it is supposed to be. 
Well, as we look at this, we understand that, you know, even though that's what the world was supposed to be, it's fallen. It's broken. Life is hard. The world is not as it's supposed to be. And why is that? It's because of the fall. The fall was not just a human problem. The fall was a creation problem. There were no carnivores before the fall. You read Genesis. That started, you know, nature red and tooth and claw. That fell, that, that happened because humanity fell. It's in a shock wave throughout all of creation. You know, when, when humans drop an atomic bomb, it doesn't just kill the people, it irradiates the ground, it transforms the physical environment. And so if we understand that Jesus Christ came to redeem humanity, it makes sense that he not only came to redeem humanity, but he also came to redeem creation. Because what we see in scripture is that the work of Jesus Christ is far broader and deeper than most of us imagine. Because the work of Jesus Christ is cosmic. And what that that word cosmic means, cosmos means the world, it means universal. It means everything. Jesus Christ was not just the savior of you and me personally. He's not just my private savior who saves me from my sins. Jesus Christ came to restore the world, to restore creation. And how do we know that? Because that was his original job as well. Part of his original, uh, his original calling as well. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Listen to that again. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Not just all people. The words here in Greek are tapanta. All things. And that means everything in creation. Yes, it definitely includes us. Don't don't think that all of a sudden you're diminished by this. Rather, it's not that we are diminished. It is that creation is elevated. That Jesus Christ in his restoration, ultimately, as we see in 21 and 22, is coming to restore all things. Christ's victory on the cross was not just a victory won for broken people. It was a victory won for the broken world. And that's good news, not just for us, but for animals, for plants, for stars, for planets, for the sky above and the earth below. Creation matters to God. The earth matters, our our bodies matter, animals and trees matter. Matter matters to God. All because God created them to manifest his glory. And so all of this stuff matters. Ta panta. I remember when, when Morgan and I were driving back from the lake one day and we had the kids in the truck and it was when Bo was really little and, and he had one of those cute little cartoony science books about, I think it was about the oceans. And one of the little factoids in the book that Morgan was reading to me is, you know, Bo had fallen asleep in the back and she was just reading in the passenger seat. She was just reading the little factoid. She said, did you know that there are over a thousand species of barnacles? A thousand species 
of barnacles. I would think one basic barnacle design would be enough. I mean, I, I mean how many variations on barnacles do you really need in the world? Well, God apparently thinks you need thousands of them. But I had to ask the question, why would God invent, create a thousand different kinds of barnacles? I'll tell you why. It's because he loves barnacles. And if he loves barnacles that much to create a thousand species of them, don't you think he loves you? Don't you think he loves this world? Don't you think he loves this whole creation? I mean, for pizza, I mean, he would have made the point at a dozen species of barnacles. And yet God's love for his creation is so great that he even made those strange little things to point to his glory. And creation knows it. It's not for nothing that Jesus said, if you don't praise me, these rocks are gonna do it. It's not for nothing that Paul said that all creation awaits redemption. And what we see in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation is that what Christ started with the cross and the empty tomb, he's gonna finish in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Too often, Revelation is mischaracterized as a story about God destroying the world. But if we read the book, we, we begin to see that when Christ comes, he comes not to condemn the world, but to restore it. Let me read you this. I've been talking a lot about covenant theology and, um, and the reform perspective, and, I've, and, and I haven't, I mean, I've talked a little bit by contrast about dispensational theology, but this is one of those things where we really do come together. And so I want to read you, to you a passage by Tim LaHaye. You know, he's the guy who wrote the Left Behind series. Um, but he, you know, this is actually from one of his prose works. Um, but I love this. This is what Tim LaHaye wrote. He said, Genesis shows humanity's beginning in a beautiful place. Revelation shows the wonderful paradise to come. Genesis shows that human beings lost the chance to eat of the tree of life. Revelation shows that they will yet eat of that tree. Genesis tells of humanity's first rebellion against God and Revelation promises an end to humanity's rebellion against God. Genesis records the tragic sorrow that resulted from sin. Revelation promises that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Genesis shows the beginning of a curse. Revelation shows a curse lifted. Genesis shows that Satan tells us that the world of God is false. Revelation shows us that the promises of God are true. I love that. I think it's a beautiful statement. Now, as we look at, Genesis, at, at both Genesis and um, Revelation, we have to understand that we're, we're really kind of focused on what I would call the macro story of God's redemption and restoration. But I do want to take a few minutes. I'm going to kind of pull away from Revelation for a second and apply Revelation principles, not to, on a cosmic level, but on a personal level level and talk about the micro story because eschatology the the doctrines of last things are not just about the redemption of the world they're also about the last things in our lives and i'm talking about that time when we when we shrug off this mortal coil and we die I'm talking about the kinds of things that that we 
need to know but don't always feel comfortable talking about even in funerals. And so in a space here that is not a funeral, I wanna talk about some of that stuff right now. And talk about how these things apply to our micro stories as well as to the macro story. Um, and I wanna take you back to a very personal story in the life of Jesus, and that is the story of the death of Lazarus. You all have, have heard many times the story of the death of Lazarus, how, how Jesus was told that his friend Lazarus was dying and he intentionally delayed in coming. And when he got there, the sisters of Lazarus said, Lord, he is dead. If you had been here, you could have prevented this. I mean, and he really was really and truly dead. I mean, if you, if you, I, I mean, I don't know which version of the Bible you prefer, but if you want to know how dead Lazarus was, the King James Version says that he's been in the tomb for four days and he stinketh. I mean, that's where he was. He's already started to decompose. And yet Jesus looked at Mary and Martha and he said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asked them a very provocative, direct question. I mean, I grew up in the South. You don't ask challenging or provocative questions in moments of, of, great, uh, of great tenderness or vulnerability. But he did. He asked them a question. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? What was he asking them to believe? Well, first of all, I believe that he was saying that in spite of the fact that he's been dead for four days and he stinketh, this is not the end. This is not the end. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I want us to think about those two terms for just a second. The resurrection really is what, we are, what we're dwelling on right now, not just the resurrection of the world, but the resurrection of people. That we will be raised as Christ was raised. And as Christ was raised physically, so too will we be raised physically. The resurrection is the bodily resurrection. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, his claim and promise is that even though our souls are departed from our bodies in death, one day when he returns, all those who have trusted him with their lives will be raised again and we will be restored body and soul to live once again as new whole persons, as a new body in a new life in a remade world. Ultimately, our destiny is not to be separated from our bodies. Now hold on with me because I know that that is not what people think that we believe as Christians. But if you remember every Sunday, we say a little, a little passage called the Apostles' Creed. And we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And people who aren't paying attention think that we're just talking about Jesus, but we already said that he was raised from the dead. So what is the resurrection of the body? The resurrection of the body is the belief that at the end of time, when Jesus returns, our souls and our bodies will be reunited in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And I think one of the most beautiful descriptions of this, because sometimes it it hits on more of an emotive level than on an on a intellectual level. But one of the most beautiful passages I've ever read on this was written by, by Lewis Abendon. It's from a sermon that he gave on the, uh, on the Apostles' Creed from his book, Beliefs That Live. And um, this, is, this is something out of his sermon on the resurrection of the body. 
He says, the phrase the resurrection of the body simply means that on the far side of death, when God gets us up, you will be you and I will be me. I say it again. On the far side of death, when God gets us up, you will be you and I will be me. In the Bible, the words flesh and body are synonymous with human being. The resurrection of the body therefore refers to the resurrection of the person. And when God gets me up, I will not be someone or something different from the person I am now. I will be myself, memory, emotions, characteristics, hopes, and intelligence, and I will be whole. I will be myself. John was right when he said, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know we will be like him. Jesus was raised and he was still himself. He was just an incredible new version of himself. The resurrection of the body is the affirmation that locates and puts redemption at the place where we most need it and the place where we also most dread. The decay and deterioration, the pain and mutilation of our physical bodies are what we all dread. We are all scared about the process of dying, even if we're not scared about what happens after that. But the resurrection of the body places redemption where it's most wanted and that, that moment of greatest fear. He says, all of that that was so painful, all of that which was so tortuous, that too shall be redeemed. And our personality and our characteristics, our real selves will be preserved. You know, one of the reasons that I say that the resurrection of the body is so important is because the resurrection of the body is about our identity. I hate it when people say all religions believe basically the same thing. Because there are a lot of religions that teach that when we die, we will be like a drop of water dropped in a bucket that just sort of is absorbed by the rest of the water in the pool. A lot of people who believe that when we die, our souls are just absorbed into the universe. Our existence is just absorbed, consumed by the universe. The resurrection of the body, however, teaches that God's ultimate plan for us is not that we would just be absorbed, that we would disappear, but that we will remain us because God created us to be us. That he created us body and soul as one creation with identities, hopes, dreams, emotions, personalities, all of those things. He loves you. I mean, come on. Remember, thousand barnacles. He loves that. He loves you. And he's not going to erase that. Not after he paid for that with the blood of his son. And so the resurrection of the body is the promise that we are not going to disappear and go away and be happy about it. It's that we will be who we are, who God made us to be. What that means is that we matter. We matter to God, that the world matters, that matter matters and that we are body as well as spirit. But the resurrection of the body is, that's, that's when Christ returns. What about now? What happens when we die now? And what's next? Well, theologians, well, let me say this. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I believe the resurrection and the resurrection, he's talking about the final resurrection. 
And I believe that when he says, and the life, I believe what he's talking about is that time after we die that theologians call the intermediate state. Now, doesn't that just sing? The intermediate state. The intermediate state is that time when, we, when our physical bodies die and our souls, our spirits go to be with the Lord, when they are separated for a time. Now, the term, the intermediate state, is good in some ways and bad in other ways. Bad in the sense that it is totally uninspiring, isn't it? You know, where, so how's your grandmother doing? Oh, she's passed into the intermediate state now. And we're just so happy that she's with Jesus in the intermediate state. Nobody, there's never, I've never heard that in a hymn. Never seen it on a greeting card. But it is an indication that there is something, you know, that, you know, on the one hand, it's not final, it's temporary, but, but there is something going on. It's not that, you know, it's not that you die and then nothing happens, and it's not that we jump immediately to what we're supposed to be for, for all eternity. It's that first, something happens, and then second, there's, there's more. Here's how the, Paul, how the Apostle Paul describes it. For we know that if this tent is our, it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And here's the key to understanding it. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of, are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The intermediate state is that point where we are both away from our bodies and with the Lord. And it is that temporary time, I have no idea how time and eternity works, but it is that time when we are separated one from another before the resurrection brings us back together in the whole created space that we are supposed to be. The intermediate space is that, is that time between death and the resurrection. Now, what does the Bible tell us about that? It tells us all kinds of things about that. But one of the things that we know is that it says, that, that Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, we know that the thief's body was not raised that day, but Jesus promised that there was gonna be something there. And what does paradise mean? The interesting thing about the word paradise is it's an ancient Aramaic word that means garden. Think of the gardens of Versailles or the gardens of you know, Biltmore Mansion or the, the, gar, you know, the hanging gardens of Babylon. It's a cultivated garden. I don't know, maybe like an Eden? Back to Genesis for a second. Wherever it is, we do believe, because Jesus said so, that it's a real place, just like San Antonio, just like Texas, just like your address. It is a real place. But we also need to understand that it's not just that we will be away from the body in a place and at home in paradise. We will also be with the Lord. Because the real important factor about the intermediate state is not where we are, it's who we're with. I mean, you, everybody in this room, as I'm looking around, everybody in this room remembers a time when your phone... I don't have it up here with me. When your phone 
was attached by a wire to a thing on the ground or on a wall. And ultimately it hooked physically to something in a specific place. So if you called a phone number, if I called my friend Frank Robinson at 254-6360, one of my best, the first phone number I ever memorized after my own, I knew that I was calling Frank's house. And I knew that if he answered the phone, he was at his house. Nobody ever, did you ever before the year 2000 ever call somebody on the phone and say, where are you? No, because you knew where they were. They were at wherever that place was stuck to the ground. Okay, now you call somebody on your cell phone and you ask, where are you? I call up my children. I call up Bo. I say, where are you? He says, I'm with mom. That's not the answer. Because that is a person answer to a geography question. But it doesn't matter where he is. He's at H-E-B. But that doesn't matter because what I really want to know, is he safe? Is he happy? And I know that if he's with his mom, if he's with Morgan, he is. Here's the thing. I don't know where heaven is. I don't know what heaven is exactly like. I've, you know, I've done a lot of research on this. I've got lots of entertaining things I can tell you about it. But the most important thing is, is that wherever it is, if it's in the presence of God, which it is, with the Lord... It's going to be better than any place here. I can, tell, I can tell you that right now. And so the intermediate state is that state that will bring us to the resurrection. Now, there are a lot of people who think, oh, why would we ever want to, to leave paradise to come back to be, you know, put back in the, in the body again when we were just kind of free will and spirits? All I can say is, however awesome heaven may be, the resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth are going to be even better. It's, we're not going to go backwards. The restored, resurrected body and world are not something to be cast off. There's something to be resurrected. And we'll be restored with that. So don't worry. Again, you know, if you, are, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it just keeps getting better, upward sloping to the right. Don't worry about that. But just know that when, when we, you know, our ultimate destiny is to be resurrected body and soul, but we will pass through that intermediate state. Now, I'm, I'm sorry I'm over time. But I do want to finish with these last few words because this kind of picks up on that last point I made. John does not conclude his, um, his, his revelation with the description of the new heaven and the new earth. Rather, he concludes his description of revelation with his description of Jesus as Jesus describes himself. Because ultimately, it's not about history. And it's not about the new heaven and the new earth or judgment or creation or tribulations. Ultimately, it's about being in the presence of him who made it and saved it all. From the beginning of Revelation, we have said that one of the major themes of this book is that it shows Jesus Christ 
as he is right now in eternity. Not just as we remember him as he's depicted around the sanctuary in these stained glass windows and his earthly life here. Not even just as he's ascended, even in his resurrected form, although that is, that is certainly um, closer. But as he is right now, King of kings and Lord of lords, because he didn't, he didn't become King of kings and Lord of lords when, when he finally defeated Satan. He was already King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's why he defeated Satan. But what we see here is that Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the first and the last, I'm the beginning and the end, I'm the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And here's what he promises. He says, I'm coming for you. Not to punish you, but to see your prosperity, reward you. Basically, he's saying, I'm coming to keep all of those promises that God has made about Messiah. The final promise of God's word is that one day the kingdom transformation that was inaugurated by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that was fulfilled and recognized in his ascension will be brought to fulfillment in his return. The return of Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those messianic promises that were made throughout scripture. You know, promises about the lion and the lamb lying down together. The promises about wiping away every tear. The promises about justice and peace. The promises of light and grace and love eternal. All that stuff that people were looking for at the first coming will finally be fulfilled or at least it will become visible in his second coming. All of it was won on the cross. But it's not visible to everybody yet. And all of those promises, the fulfillment of all those promises, will become visible in the return of Christ. And that's why John finishes his, his revelation with a prayer. And the prayer is very simply this. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Because with your coming is the fulfillment and the visible fulfillment of every promise of God. And don't we crave that? This has been a year of tribulation for us. I'm not saying the tribulations, the capital T tribulations, but this has been a year at least of little t tribulations. And I think there's always a fear that when Christ comes, it's just going to get worse. But the overarching promise of, of revelation is not that when Christ comes, it gets worse. But for those who trust in him as their Lord and their Savior, when he comes, it is going to be the end of the world as we know it. But we will feel fine. And so John prays, come, Lord Jesus. Because whatever the tribulations are, Whenever they start, when they happen, we know that our Lord is not far behind. Jesus said, John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. I don't know about you, but I feel like there, there are things, well, not just things, everything in this world needs to be overcome. 
And rather than dread the coming of Christ, we should be on our knees praying, come, Lord Jesus. Not wasting time, not not sitting idly by, not like the Thessalonians who thought they could just sit on the park bench and wait for the bus. We're called to do what we are called to do, but we can still pray, Lord, bring your victory. Make it visible. Bring your peace. Come, Lord, let us walk in the cool of the garden and the cool of the evening with you. Come, Lord Jesus. And just as John said, don't take away or add anything to, my, to, to what I've written here, I'm going to stop there. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we finish this study of Revelation, we know that we are really just beginning to understand what you revealed to your servant John. So, Lord, help us to come back to this work time and time again that we may grow in our knowledge, grow in our depth, and and grow, Lord, in our appreciation of your sovereignty and your love, your glory. Come, Lord Jesus, and give us the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.